Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of On Air with the Chair. I'm Captain Nicholas James, your MEC Chairman. Today, we're going to talk about the current state of Endeavor as it relates to our staffing, future flying, and the company requesting concessions from our pilot group. But before we get to those topics, I'd actually like to introduce Peter Ruhlman. Peter, would you like to say hi to the pilot group? Hey, uh, my name is Peter Ruhlman. I'm a member of the uh, communications committee for the Endeavor MEC. I do things like I'm on the team for the uh, website administration, uh, the bulletin boards, and this podcast here. I first would like to apologize to the pilot group for the lengthy delay between podcast episodes. You know, when we launched these podcasts in February, the intent was to put them out on a monthly basis. And we'd actually recorded a couple of episodes, including one with our negotiating committee chairman, uh, Chuck Bates, uh, regarding the state of negotiations, and our scheduling committee chairman, uh, Chad Potter. Unfortunately, once COVID hit, uh, all of those things changed, and the data and and topics that were discussed inside those podcasts really kind of became irrelevant in in a COVID environment. So unfortunately, we weren't able to use those episodes. And then moving forward, because of social distancing guidelines, ALPA offices being shut down, uh, mask wearing, so on and so forth, it has taken this long to get uh, Peter and I back into the same room where we could uh, we could record one of these podcasts. But we do believe that moving forward, uh, we will be able to do these on a monthly basis once again. So uh, thank you for your patience while we had that uh, unfortunate temporary delay. Uh, but like I said, moving forward, we should have these uh, going every single month. Uh, don't forget, as part of these podcasts, we are asking the pilot group to email ideas for topics or for questions, and you can send this email to edvcoms at alpa.org. If we do choose your question or your topic uh, for the podcast, we're going to send you a gift from the MEC. So again, if you are uh, interested in a topic or a question, please email edvcoms at alpa.org. All right, so in this section, we talk about what's new at Endeavor. Um, So what's new, what has changed since COVID took over? Well, essentially, everything has changed. COVID has made us completely rethink and revamp how we operate, especially from a safety front, and not not a safety front in how we operate the aircraft, but a safety front in how we uh, clean the aircraft, how we keep ourselves safe when working around other crew members or how we keep ourselves safe when interacting with other passengers. So we've really had to revamp it from uh, that standpoint. But specifically with respect to what has changed as far as our growth plans are concerned, both on the dual class and single class airframe, that's where we want to focus your attention uh, as a pilot because that is most pertinent to your job security and your future opportunities, which I know is on the minds of every single pilot out there as October 1st looms closer. So let's talk a little bit about what was slated to happen in 2020. And as we entered this year, Endeavor was poised for some very, very significant growth on the dual class uh, frame, uh, primarily driven by the acquisition of the GoJet aircraft that were coming off of contract, along with a few other uh, new airframes. The good news is there is no plans by Delta or by Endeavor to not eventually operate those airframes. Uh, The challenge is the timing of when we're going to be able to operate those hulls. Uh, As you know, COVID has meant uh, up to 90% reductions in our flying. And with those types of reductions, we have had to park uh, the vast majority of those aircraft. 
Fortunately, moving forward, and we'll talk about this in just a, a little bit, but moving forward, we're going to see some of that demand and some of those block hours return, and, and even in, in greater levels than we first envisioned uh, by the end of this summer. Um, but right now, there is no plan to not eventually operate the 140-ish dual-class aircraft that we are going to have uh, on property. So that's kind of the good news as, as far as the long-term program is concerned. We are still acquiring those aircraft, um, but as we acquire them, we are not doing any type of bridging or conformity checks on those aircraft because right now, cash conservation is king. And if you are not gonna be operating that aircraft, why spend the money on bringing it up to uh, Endeavor standards? So until demand returns, uh, we probably will not see those aircraft go through the conformity checks, but once it does, we fully anticipate to be able to operate uh, those airframes. So that kind of covers our 700 and 900 frame, but where does that leave us though with respect to the 200 airframe? Um, there have been many plans that Delta and Endeavor have spoken about over the last several months as, as COVID has unfolded, including scuttling the entire 200 fleet. So all 125 DCI 200s throughout the entire network being parked. Now, this really didn't make much sense to the Endeavor MEC, uh, simply because if United and American doesn't follow suit and they also don't park their 50-seat feed, once demand returns, you're going to lose market share in those smaller markets. And your hub-and-spoke model that has been very successful uh, over the last you know, 20 years uh, is going to be in jeopardy. And so that really didn't make sense to us, especially with low fuel prices um, you know, making the 200 airframe far more viable. But it was a plan that was being thrown around. Now, Endeavor Management has told us or briefed us on three different plans for the 200 airframe. Um, right now, we're operating 42 CRJ 200 aircraft. That includes some operational spares, so the actual lines are flying are probably around 36 to 38. Um, the first plan would actually have us stay right at around the same size we are today, 40 aircraft. The second plan has us moving to 50 aircraft, and the third plan has us moving to 60 aircraft. So in a worst case scenario, as far as the 200 airframe is concerned, we're gonna stay the same size we are today. In the mid case scenario, we're gonna grow by 25% on that fleet, and in the best case scenario, we're gonna grow by 50% in that fleet with no expected reductions on the dual class airframe. So really that means um, our outlook as far as job security is much stronger and much better than it was as this pandemic uh, began uh, in late March. Another thing that uh, I think might be very interesting to the pilot group is how quickly our block hours are returning. So as you know, about 90% of our flying has evaporated over the last several months. Uh, but moving into July, we're getting back to about 50% pre-COVID levels. And in August and September, we have been asked by Delta to deliver 85% on peak days uh, pre-COVID flying. And that is a significant return uh, of our, like I said, pre-COVID levels uh, in a very short amount of time. What does all of this increase in flying mean for our pilots? What does this potential growth mean for our pilots? Well, what it really means is at this point in time, Endeavor is not considering furloughs come October 1st. Now that could change. We are in a fast paced dynamic environment. And if we hit a second wave of COVID, obviously that's gonna have to be reevaluated. But at this point in time, there aren't any furloughs that are being expected. And that is really great news. I know management has stated publicly to the pilot group in recurrent ground school classes that furloughs 
could be, come October 1st, north of 100, south of 700. Uh, for the MEC, they gave us a more targeted range that was going to be somewhere between 400 and 600. So to have those numbers revised all the way down to we're not anticipating furloughs at this point in time, I think is a, a, a very big win. Um, the other thing that I think is important to remember is the four to 600 number, um, we believe wasn't really feasible considering that in those conversations as well, the company also indicated that to meet the summer expected summer 2021 demand, they would need every pilot that is on property today to be back into um, the seniority list and, and revenue flying. There are constraints within the schoolhouse, both from uh, recurrency training and new hire training, that we think really would have limited them to a, a far lesser number than 400 to 600. But either way, it is great news that at, at least at this point in time, we're not looking at furloughs come October 1st. So in the first part of the podcast, we talked about our staffing, we talked about our future flying, we talked about halls, we talked about block hours. But now let's talk about what has been happening and or not happening on the bargaining front, because I know that many of our pilots have reached out to reps, officers, negotiators over the last several months to try to understand uh, where we are in, in that process. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to bring uh, Peter Ruhlman again. Peter, uh, welcome to the conversation again. Well, thanks, Nick. I have a very uh, unique position here, not just being a member of the uh the MEC communications committee, but also being one of the pilots who are on the front lines, um, uh, just day in and day out, talking to people, getting their uh, their opinions, their concerns, and such, and also being able to uh, review the questions that are being sent in sometimes on uh, the edvcoms uh, at alpa.org email address. Um, so I've I've got a lot of kind of questions that uh, our, our our pilot group are maybe confused about or wants more information of. Uh, specifically concerning bargaining. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that we did have a um, unreleased podcast about our negotiations and such, and uh, we haven't been able to release that because of outdated information. But where are we standing on bargaining now? Are we still negotiating over things such as pay cuts, concessionary items, or other things that may impact our pilot's career? Yeah, no, that's a very pertinent question. I, I do get a lot of pilots that reach out to me on a consistent basis asking where we are in that process. Um, I think to understand where we are in that process, and, and first let me give you the short answer, no, we are not in the midst of, of bargaining over any concessionary proposal at this point. But to really understand kind of what has unfolded since COVID hit, we really have to kind of go back to LOA 114. And for our listener, LOA 114 was the COVID pay protection letter. And the reason that it really needs to start there is because, you know, the COVID pay protection letter um, really, in our viewpoint, should have been a very easy, straightforward LOA. I mean, we have a very strong bargaining history with uh, the Endeavor Management Group. Um, and so when COVID started to unfold, we looked at what was happening in the industry, both at the regional, low-cost carrier, and mainline levels, and several properties were out there um, doing some type of COVID pay protection letters. Now, some of them were letters of agreement. Some of them were memorandums of understanding. Some properties gave some things up like bid timeline latitude, just like the Endeavor MEC did. Others uh, didn't really have to give any contractual latitude. The company just stepped up and protected the pilots as they should. Um, so, you know, different properties did different things that were right for them. When we engaged Endeavor on potential COVID-19 pay protections, uh, their first response was, well, we're not really interested in doing something different for the pilots that we're not doing for our regular and Tower C employees. 
And we're not interested in different programs. We're not interested in disparate treatment. And, and certainly why we can be sensitive and, and understand that equality is a great thing and treating people equally is a great thing. Um, sometimes what is equal is not always what is fair. And what is fair is not always what is equal. And what the company was completely missing was the fact that our pilot's exposure and risk of exposure was far, far higher than a Tower C employee. You know, for instance, our pilots don't get into cars and commute to work. They commute in airplanes by and large. About two thirds of our pilots are commuters. Um, when a Tower C employee is, is conducting their job, they are basically in an office or a cubicle with a computer and a desk and Clorox wipes that are readily available. Our pilots are climbing in and out of flight decks that at the time were only being cleaned once every 15 days. But when we pointed that out to the company, they did an excellent job of starting to clean them every three days with the airworthiness check. So we really appreciated that. Um, we also worked with them to get better quality wipes in there that were uh, more effective against COVID than, than the Sanicoms. Uh, so we did appreciate those, but still our pilots were in a very dynamic environment, getting in and out of airplanes, going in and out of airports. And at the end of the day, they don't get in their cars and go home. They get in an airport shuttle and they go to a hotel. And so the risk exposure was so much greater for the pilots that we felt it necessary to enact some type of COVID pay protections. Um, but again, unfortunately, the company really wasn't willing to move on that. So uh, what I did was I picked up the phone and I called David Garrison uh, pretty much at the 11th hour, right before we were going to run out of time to give any type of April bid timeline relief and still get these pay protections. And we were able to come to terms and come to an agreement and move forward. And since then, we've signed an MOU, which extends those COVID pay protections through the end of September, the September bid period. So, you know, fortunately, we were able to come to a deal. It was just a little surprising to me at, at how difficult it was actually to reach that agreement, uh, but was kind of in, indicative of what was going to happen in future bargaining. So Nick, you said that LOA uh, 114 kind of set the stage for future bargaining. What did the MEC pursue next in an effort to mitigate the damages done by COVID? Pilots like yourself, Peter, and when did you join the industry? Oh, man. Um, I started here in May of 18. May of 18. So really, you understand the cyclicality of the industry, but this is really kind of the first downside that you've experienced yep. and the first downside that many of our pilots have experienced. Mm -hmm. So when you start to get to the downside um, side of the cyclicality, uh, what you really want to do is you want to start looking for, if concessions are necessary, you want to start looking for voluntary programs that can mitigate involuntary cuts, or you want to talk about voluntary furlough mitigation so that you can limit or eliminate the number of involuntary furloughs. You know, for instance, during the last bankruptcy, we had about 3,000 pilots here. Um, it was told that within 18 months, we would have to furlough hundreds of those pilots. And we didn't actually furlough a, involuntarily furlough a single pilot. We were able to do enough on the voluntary front. And there was also some natural attrition that, that helped a lot. Um, but we were able to, between those two mechanisms, do enough that we never had to enact an, one involuntary furlough. So that was actually a really good thing for us. So that's kind of our mentality as we look for opportunities to do voluntary so that we can mitigate or eliminate the involuntary. Okay, so what was the first uh, voluntary thing that the MEC did? So the company came to us as, as COVID started to unfold and they said, um, we have this TV LOA, this temporary voluntary leave of absence that 
has some enhancements to it, and it's being offered at Delta both for the unionized and non-unionized employees, and we'd like to offer it here. And we said, absolutely. You know, we have to make sure that what you're offering fits into the JCBA, and we may have to make some language changes or some amendments, but absolutely we can do that. The company also said that, you know, this is a first step or a precursor to getting the total type, total concessions that they need. Delta had set certain goals uh, for Endeavor management. And what they were looking for was right around 35 or 36% total labor savings. And they wanted equal amounts from different segments of the employee group. So whether you're talking about pilots, flight attendants, mechanics, frontline employees, officers, directors, they wanted about 36% savings. So they said, if we get enough participation in the TVLOAs, we won't have to do any involuntary cuts. And that's what exactly what we ended up seeing with the flight attendants. The flight attendants fully subscribed to the TVLOAs. Okay, and we'll talk about the reasons why here in a second, but it was very, very popular with the flight attendants. So they didn't have to even entertain the idea of involuntary cuts. For the pilots, however, it was a little bit of a different equation. Um, if you take a look at the federal unemployment program that is in place through the end of July, that extra $600 a week, when you couple that with state unemployment, Anybody making between about fifty dollars or $60,000 a year in this country is actually going to do better staying at home than they would if they came into work. And that's true inside and outside our industry. So we knew that that was one of the big drivers, if not the biggest driver, as to why participation rates were going to be so high amongst certain segments of the employee group. And it's a great program. For our pilots, however, the only segment or tranche of our pilot group that actually fits into that tier would be our first-year pilot. And unfortunately for our first-year pilot, there are two things that are working against them. Number one, they're probably not going to qualify for unemployment because they don't have enough service time at Endeavor. And number two, they are likely to be the first ones, if furloughs happen, to be furloughed. And do you want to preemptively burn through your unemployment benefits in advance of that furlough? And I think you were probably had the same mindset, didn't you, Peter? Yeah, I was uh, just on that bracket um, where it would have been uh, just about equal for me to take the TVLOA. Uh, and I was encouraged to uh, high risk family at home. It was difficult to get out and make sure that they were safe at home as well. Um, but when it came down to it, uh, if furloughs were to happen in the 400 to 600% or uh, number of pilots, I would have been in that. So it was uh, discouraging me to to take that just because, like you said, if I was going to get furloughed in October, why do I want to stop flying now? Um, but yeah, I was within that group as well. Yeah. And so we, we knew participation wasn't going to be as strong out of the pilot group. So we asked the company, let's work collaboratively and brainstorm for some ideas to come up with that may entice more pilots to take it. After all, if more pilots take it, then that's less involuntary cuts that we have to entertain. And that was a really good thing for us. And the company just said, again, we're not interested in doing anything different for any of the groups. This is the program. This is what we're offering. And that's that's really it. Um, and typically, that's not how we like to bargain. You know, we like to problem solve on both sides. But at the same time, you know, we knew that some pilots would take this because it was a good, it was a good deal for them or it was the right deal for them. And we didn't want to stand in the way of our pilots being able to take advantage of the program. And we also didn't want to stand in the way of cost savings because getting some cost savings is better than none. But we certainly were looking for opportunities to try to maximize those savings. And the company really wasn't interested, which sent a very clear message to us. 
Which it's interesting that you say that we were looking at different ways for cost cutting measures and um, other MECs are doing the same. We saw that the Delta uh, MEC and management were both looking at offering a special incentive line. Um, and that was eventually rescinded from, from the table on Delta. Did the Endeavor MEC ever approach the company about enacting something similar to the special incentive lines? Oh, yeah, we absolutely did. And I guess for our listener that may not be familiar with a SIL, a special incentive line. Peter, why don't you kind of explain real quick what a special incentive line is? So special incentive line, as I understand it, is a program that would allow a pilot to take a, a reduction to his monthly guarantee in our case, or in Delta's case, their average line value, and stay at home, not have to come into work, but receive less hours per month than they normally would. Yeah, so we did talk to the company about special incentive lines. Um, special incentive lines are wildly popular in the industry. And I'm not just talking about the main lines. I'm not just talking about the regionals. I'm not talking about just the wholly owned or non-wholly owned. I'm also talking about the low-cost carriers. I'm talking about both unionized and non-unionized workforces. We are one of the only carriers outside of, let's say, Delta as well, that did not enact special incentive lines. And on some of the conference calls that we've had with National, you know, these companies in totality are saving hundreds of millions of dollars every single month utilizing this mechanism. And so, you know, it sends a kind of conflicting message when you are saying that the world is on fire and you need cash conservation and you need to save money wherever you can, yet you don't want to actually change TVLOAs to entice participation and you don't want to do special incentive lines. That that sends some, some dichotomous messages to the MEC, um, but very informative messages when you're trying to think about is this a deal that we should enter into? So we did talk to them about special incentive lines during TVLOA negotiations. We also talked to them about special incentive lines when they had proposed the minimum monthly guarantee cuts, which I'm sure we'll be talking about here in just a little bit. Um, but their, their message was the same. There are several reasons why we don't want to do these, but the only reason that was ever given was because we feel like it treats people differently. You know, we're paying a pilot that's a reduced guarantee, but we're paying a pilot to stay at home when we're not paying somebody else to stay at home. Well, that is somewhat true, but really doesn't, it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the real issue. It is true that they would be paying a pilot to stay at home, but the other employee that is on unemployment is actually being paid more to stay at home. You know, as, as you and I have discussed even before this podcast started, uh, because of the federal unemployment, 70% of the people on unemployment in this country are making more on unemployment than they were going to their jobs. And the estimates of people that are making the same or more have gone as high as 90%. So the vast majority of those individuals are actually doing better. And what we said to the company was, we understand that those that might be a concern of yours, but what we're trying to focus on is solution-driven results. That's what we're focused on. You're telling us you need cost savings, and so we want to derive solutions that produce those results. And I understand that this might be a challenge or an obstacle for you, but we can probably overcome that. But the company really wasn't willing to, and so we didn't enhance the TVLOAs, and we weren't able to get to special incentive lines. So Nick, you talked about the uh, concessionary proposal uh, just for a quick second there. A lot of our pilots know that there was a proposal brought to the table that eventually didn't pan out. What was contained in this proposal? Yeah, Peter. So the company came to us with a proposal and, and I will talk to the pilot group just about the meat of the proposal. And essentially what it was, was three items. They wanted a reduction in our minimum monthly guarantee from 75 hours down to 55 hours. 
They wanted the ability to return FTIs to the line without the normal 60-day notification window. And if you're familiar with FTI compensation or full-time instructor compensation, they are compensated either at a 100 or 105 hour level, depending upon whether they're single or dual qualified. Uh, so potentially an instructor could be taking close to a 50% pay cut overnight. Uh, and in return, they were offering no furlough protections through July 31st. And that was a very anemic proposal. And let me explain why. Um, first of all, we didn't know what the TVLOA numbers were. And as we said earlier in the podcast, we need to know those numbers because the better participation we have on the voluntary side, the less we actually have to take on the involuntary side. So it was a little confusing that the company was coming to us with um, these involuntary cuts before we even knew what kind of participation we would have on the TVLOA side. We also took another stab at special incentive lines at that point, and we said, well, doesn't it make sense to try to reduce this burden? Maybe we don't have to go to 55. Maybe we only have to go to 60 or 65 if we get better participation on the special incentive lines or participation at all by instituting the program. And the company wasn't wasn't really interested in that. And the kind of the third problem with the proposal was the company offer of no furloughs through July 31st. This was before the CARES Act came into, into play, but we knew they were in Washington talking to Congress and our leaders about CARES Act money. And we knew if we got CARES Act money, that no furloughs would, uh, furloughs could not occur until October 1st. So really they weren't even offering anything. And, and Peter, I don't expect, and hopefully the pilot group knows this as well, I don't expect that the company's going to come in with their best offer right from the start. But if you're going to ask for 27% pay cuts across the board, which by the way is larger than was enacted in the bankruptcy, you have to offer something. You have to offer something. And there was just, there was no offer there. So we, you know, we listened to their proposal and they knew what we were going to counter with, which was career progression. Okay. And the reason that we were going to counter with career progression is because when you need economic relief, we can't create an economic heavy proposal. We have to find low cost, no cost, delayed or deferred benefits. And there, there really isn't anything a, that's going to be more valuable for our pilot group than career progression. Uh, B, that's going to cost less for the company. Or C, that's going to be deferred as long as career progression would be. So we really thought that that proposal made sense in the context of their ask. Um, so we, we broached the idea of career progression with them. And they immediately turned it down. Immediately turned it down. And they said, you know, we can't negotiate over career progression because at this point in time, Delta views that ask as Endeavor MEC trying to leverage the pandemic. Now, it's not often that I take offense to something that is said at the table because really it's just bargaining. It's just business. That's all it is. And I get that. Uh, but on behalf of the pilot group, I took a great deal of umbrage uh, to that characterization uh, simply because we have been pursuing career progression for eight years. We've aggressively been pursuing it for about two and a half. We launched a campaign over it nine months ago. Our ask is still the same. We haven't changed and we have maintained a level of consistency and therefore credibility on that front. And so, you know, we pointed quickly out to the company that our ask isn't changing, yours has. What also was challenging was the fact that the company had indicated to us, Endeavor Management had indicated to us that we should expect a career progression meeting with Delta that would include John Lauder, who had replaced Jim Graham as senior VP of Delta Flight Ops. And at that meeting, we would actually have paper passed to us. And I really want the, the pilots to, to hear this. 
this wasn't just a discussion. This wasn't in theory. We were going to go down to Atlanta and we were going to have paper passed to us that was going to have a guaranteed and contractual model that we have been pursuing. Why? Because at that point in time, pre-COVID, remember, we were attriting far more than we were hiring and we were trying to grow. And the company needed latitude on how to hire pilots and they needed latitude on how to get more efficiency out of those pilots. And they knew the only thing we were willing to deal for those things was career progression and they were ready to do it. So I said, our ask isn't changing, yours has. Okay, so who's actually trying to leverage here? And unfortunately, they just, they didn't want to hear us on that career progression front. So Nick, you talked about career progression uh, quite a lot right there. So you know, we're going to talk about it a little bit more. Of course. Um, this is something that I've seen on the line, you know, less pilots wearing the lanyard, more pilots putting on the hat. Uh, a lot of people feeling like career progression may be a selfish thing to ask for right now as a pilot group. What would you say to those pilots who see our progression for all campaign as something we shouldn't be focusing on right now, something that we should be putting aside to save pilot jobs or save paychecks or anything like that. I understand when you've got pilots on the street, and we do right now, trans states, compass pilots are on the street, we could have a lot more pilots on the street come October 1st. I understand that, you know, from a prima facie level, it looks like it could potentially just be self-serving and selfish. But as I've explained to the pilot group before in some of my chairman updates, progression for all is not just about getting Endeavor pilots to Delta, because this isn't just an issue that is unique to the Endeavor Delta um, relationship. This is something that we see widely throughout the industry. Um, progression for all means just what it says, progression for all. If we have pilots on the street, we wanna make sure that we find them jobs, especially if they are Alpha pilots. I've already been in contact with Ryan Schnitzer, who is the Delta MEC chairman. And if there are potential furloughs at Delta, um, and we are hiring down here at the Endeavor level. What can we do to get those pilots on our list and flying under the Delta brand, under the Delta system and protecting Alpha jobs? And just to make sure that I'm very clear, I am not talking about a flow back. I'm talking about bringing those pilots to the bottom of our list. On top of that, what can we do for the trans states and Compass pilots and any other pilot out there that has been serving in an Alpha property? What can we do to get those pilots in those doors? We want those pilots to progress. And once they get here, we want them to progress even further. So I would say it's not selfish at all to be wearing the lanyard. Our goals have not changed. Good economy, bad economy, strong bargaining environment, weak bargaining environment, our ask needs to remain consistent in order to have credibility. So I would just say that a campaign is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And during that marathon, you are going to go through some trials and tribulations. And you just need to be able to persevere and stay true to your goals and true to your message. So Nick, thanks for that explanation. It's, it's a, certainly a new way to look at progression for all, for me at least, and hopefully some other people will see that as well. So going back to the concessionary proposal, we talked about what was in it. Where did it end up? Why are we not seeing the effects of that? Yeah. So, you know, we we came in and we said, look, you know, there are certain things that are required of us and therefore it's going to be required of you before we really can even entertain this proposal seriously. Uh, for instance, when you deal in a concessionary bargaining environment, uh, the ALPA admin manual and policy manual at National uh, dictates certain things that we have to receive as an MEC before we really can can entertain seriously the idea of entering into this this agreement. Things like data, okay, and specifically, 
what is the overall pilot labor cost here at Endeavor? What is the uh, pilot cost per head? What is the total savings that the company believes their proposal is going to generate? What other options does Delta have to unlock additional liquidity and cash flow? And ultimately, what is your recovery plan? I mean, we need these things and we explain that to the, the company. And unfortunately, to this day, we still haven't seen one shred of data that supports their proposal. So that was also a challenge. Even though we didn't receive that data, we still, like I said, came in there and we asked about career progression and we were told that it looks like we're trying to leverage and so come back with a different ask. By the time we re-engaged with uh, the company, some things had changed. And what had really changed was primarily the CARES Act money. So I'm not sure that the listener knows, but Delta took $5.9 billion of CARES Act money, Okay, 70% of which never has to be repaid. Okay. That's a grant. That means your taxpayer dollars, over $4 billion of your taxpayer dollars is flowing into the coffers of Delta to support labor. Okay, The other 1.9 is going to be in the form of a low interest loan. Specifically at Endeavor, we received $400 million, $280 million of which doesn't have to be paid back. The other 120, again, low interest loan to support labor. So our tax dollars are already supporting labor. In conjunction with that, if we were to reduce our guarantee by 27%, um, we would be getting hit twice. And so to get hit twice like that would require something of very, very significant value. So for the first time in Endeavor's history, and I definitely want to hone in on this point with you, Peter, for the first time in Endeavor's history, we came back into the room and we said, there isn't anything else that we're interested in for this price other than career progression. That's it. And so, you know, we've We've got a few pundits out there that will say, um, you know, we're holding up bargaining over career progression or we're not getting to deals and getting other pilot benefits because of career progression. The only deal that has ever fallen apart as a lack, as a result of a lack of career progression is cutting your pay 27%. So I think it was probably the right call for us. Um, and let's think about why the company wasn't willing to deal with career progression. It wasn't because we were trying to leverage the pandemic, it's because we couldn't save them enough money. If we do back in the napkin math, their concessionary proposal probably saved them in the neighborhood of $5 million a month. And I'm being a little generous there, but probably around $5 million a month. So if we had taken, let's say, six months worth of concessions, we saved the operation $30 million. Now, $30 million isn't an insignificant amount of money. But when your purported burn rate, cash burn rate, that Delta has talked about, is 30 to 50 million a day, that means our concessions only leave the lights on for a few hours, a day at the most. And when you, when you look at $30 million against the backdrop of $400 million, $280 million of which is free money again, or against the backdrop of $5.9 billion that Delta received, you can see why it didn't really move the needle. You know, and keep in mind that you know Delta has spent the last seven years um, buying a significant amount of their stock back to the tune of twelve billion dollars, and that doesn't even go into dividends or executive compensation or anything along those lines. So I think really, Peter, uh, it just came down to the fact that we we couldn't offer them enough savings to entice them into career progression, and they couldn't offer enough things on their side to really entice us into 27% pay cuts. And so the deal just kind of fell apart. Um, does this hurt us you know, strategically in future bargaining? I don't believe it does. I mean, sometimes deals just fall apart. And sometimes the best deal for the pilot group or for the union is to not get to a deal. And, and that's exactly what happened here. 
Uh, it's just part of the natural bargaining process. So that's interesting. We've we've been talking about uh, the different negotiations that we've been doing in the past. What do you think the future is? Um, no, that that's a great question. So does that mean that bargaining is over or we're not looking for new opportunities? Well, again, in, when you're on the downside of the cyclicality, your primary focus is to protect what you have. And if you do have to end up giving concessions, let's learn from past mistakes. Those concessions have to come with snapbacks or possible snap forwards. We don't want to give things up permanently and have to renegotiate for those later. We, as an, as an association, we've learned from those mistakes. So that's where the focus would be in the near term. Now, as far as what other opportunities are out there, there are still some opportunities out there. The company has already engaged with us on some different things that they would like to do um, on the safety side of the operation. And we have a safety program that we would like to improve that's called the fatigue program. You know, so there are going to be, I think, some, some good chances of doing some smaller type deals. Now, anything that's going to rise to the level of an LOA 71 or an LOA 91 with you know, dozens of moving parts and, and lots of economics put into it. No, that's probably off the table at, at this point until our industry recovers. But, you know, if we can navigate this crisis and at the end of the day, we don't lose a single job, we don't take a single involuntary cut, and we are the same size or bigger coming out of the other side, that's a good deal for us. That's a good day. You have time for a question, 4562. Any red reports up ahead? Yes, Nick, it's been a real big pleasure to be on air with you today. Uh, before we go, uh, we like to end every episode with a question from the front line. I'd like to remind everybody that if you have a question, email it to edvcoms at alpa.org. I read each of these uh, personally, and we would love to get it on air. Uh, another reminder that if we do choose your question, we'll be sending you a free gift from the MEC. So once again, that's edvcoms at alpa.org. Today's question is from 200 Detroit Captain Ron Mealy. He asks, what is the status of the early out program? Yeah, so again, we've talked so much in this podcast about voluntary cost mitigation strategies, and early outs is one of those programs that we have seen enacted um, you know, widely throughout the industry. Um, specifically at the Delta property, they have enacted a program for non-unionized pilots. And last I knew, they were still in, in discussions on the unionized front to enact an early out program because an early out program can save a, a significant amount of costs. We assumed that that program was going to come down to Endeavor, uh, especially since the company has been operating under the mantra of we have to do the same for everybody. So if you're going to do something up there, we would expect that something the same was going to be do done down here. Um, but all of that changed when Delta decided for us that we were going to increase our flying and we were going to increase our route structure and we were going to potentially take on more 200 aircraft. Now, all of a sudden, we are in a situation where we need all hands on deck. So they, for the lack of better terminology, scuttled any ideas of running an early out program here at Endeavor, which I know is, is very disappointing for the people that could have participated in the program. If we had put the same parameters in place as Delta, I think about 270 pilots would have been eligible. Now, it's not to say that 270 pilots would take it. Maybe only 30 would take it. Maybe nobody would take it. But about 270 would be eligible. So it was a little disappointing that that opportunity uh, kind of went by the wayside. But overall, as far as you know, the outlook for Endeavor, that actually probably is a pretty good thing for us because it does mean that we need pilots uh, in an environment where people are potentially going to be losing their jobs come October 1st. So 
Ron, you know, thanks for the question. We are certainly going to send you a, a gift from the MEC. Appreciate it. Um, Peter, thank you so much for uh, joining us and, and asking these excellent questions. Well, thanks and for having me. No problem. And uh, to the pilots, uh, thanks once again for listening to another podcast. Uh, we will be talking to you next month. Send everything to 531, runway 28, quit the land.